All right, let's run this. Uh, hey, listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is horror westerns, and we are joined by guests Pat McDonough, Brianna Morgan, and Drew Huff. We will start with a broad discussion about the trope, then we're going to deep dive into the movie Bone Tomahawk, Brendan LaFaro's noose, and then we'll wrap things up with a discussion about the upcoming anthology Hot Iron and Cold Blood, which features all of our wonderful guests for the evening in various capacities. There's going to be mild spoilers for all of them scattered throughout, so if you are very spoiler-averse, maybe go away, come back after you've read or watched it. Um, But okay, with all of that out of the way, here we go. Let's get spooky. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Everybody, how the hell are we doing tonight? Hey, William. Hey. Hello, hello. I'm doing pretty solid. Excellent to hear. Um, We've been on a mini hiatus for the last month as I try to get my life back in order, so I feel so rusty right now, (laughs) but it's great to come back to especially this group of panelists because I feel so comfortable with you. Like, Brianna, you've been on the show before. You did our first recorded episode ever, Um, but for anybody that might have missed that one or any new listeners, why don't we give you a second to introduce yourself? Who are you? Hi, I'm Brianna Morgan. People, a lot of people call me Brie, so if you know me by Brie, that's cool too. I am obviously a horror author and a playwright. Um, some of the books I've written include The Reyes Incident, Mouthful of Ashes, The Trick or Treater, and Other Stories, and Unboxed. And uh, otherwise, I live in Atlanta. I have a fiance, and we have two cats. Yeah, and I, I got to talk to you about Reyes Incident last time, so this is fun to like kind of be going down our timelines together and, and seeing how, how things have changed for you, and you're a godless award winner now. Hell That's yeah. true. <laughs> That's great. Congrats. Thank you. And then Pat, let's jump to you next. We have been friends for a long time on Twitter, but this is my first time actually talking to you face to face. So I'm super jazzed about this, but also I feel so familiar with you already. Like this is Yeah, fun. it's been uh, four years. You, uh, for some reason, followed the review platform I was given in 2019. That is no longer Deadhead Reviews, and we've been talking ever since. (laughs) Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody listening in? If they don't know you, who are you? What is your little niche in the horror community? Well, I got a podcast with one of my best friends. Uh, It's called Dead Headspace. I'm a writer and a editor, uh, mainly anthologies. My niche, I guess, would be those three. <laughs> kind of pride myself on like making good friend connections too, like we were talking about before the show. You know, that's it. <laughs> I just like to make people smile with creepy stuff. There are way worse niches than <laughs> making people smile <laughs> and having a bunch of friends. <laughs> um, and then Drew, you are the you are the new to me panelist uh, on this episode. So Drew, who are you? Can you introduce yourself to me a little bit? And um... Well, I am not always the biggest people person. I can be a little shy sometimes, but um, man, I'm pretty new in the community, to be honest. I've had a few short stories come out. The one in this anthology, I would say, is one of the ones I'm proudest of. I'm just not a short story person. I'm really more of a longer form, but my debut is coming out from Dark Matter Inc. in 2024, and I'm so excited. And I've got a lot of other stuff coming out, too, hopefully pretty soon. And yeah, it's just kind of my, I don't have much of a niche yet. Uh, you will when that book comes out. It's fucking crazy. Oh, thanks. I mean that in the best of ways, by the way. <laughs> just from reading this one short story of yours, like already, like you are, you're damn good. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Wait to see what this novel looks like, especially if you think that a short story is your weak point. Like this is we'll get to it we'll get to it we got to build up to it um we got we got a whole movie and a whole novel to talk about first but i i can't wait to dive into that but we'll get a bunch of chances to talk about all of those different forms and like strengths and weaknesses for them um but we're going to talk about all of them through the lens of horror westerns so let's let's talk about our surprisingly difficult to pin down topic here horror westerns 
sounds like it should be very straightforward in the title of this subgenre we've got the theme horror uh we're supposed to evoke fear at some point and we've got a setting westerns so that feels like it should be very very narrow in scope but then when we look at the movie that we're talking about today and the book and the short stories it is so vast the array of stories that you can tell even within those constraints so I feel like limiting it to just genre and setting is too too narrow of a scope. So would you three help me out here? When we're talking about horror Westerns, what does horror Western actually mean to you? How should we be defining this genre or subgenre for the day? Uh, Brianna, you want to start us? Yeah, so maybe I'm not the best to cover this because uh, Dread Creek is my first attempt at writing anything close to a horror Western. But I have played a lot of Red Dead Redemption too, so <laughs> I'm like an armchair expert. For me, a horror western is just you know the idea of a western, but you add kind of the darker parts of the human psyche to it. You know whether that's like jealousy, violence, um, assault. You know all these terrible things that maybe most westerns traditionally gloss over. That's what, in my opinion, makes it a horror western. And obviously. You can get into whether or not a certain, you know, that spans a certain time period or if it's like a certain vibe. But to me, that is the basic essence of it. Without diving to hot iron right off the bat, this is kind of going to lean into all of that. But uh, for me, just it's the whole point of the anthology, which is um, not your typical Western. It's sure you have similar settings to what you've seen before. But Bree just said Dread Creek is her story. We'll talk about that later, but it, it just, it's one of those stories. Hers is hers and Ron Kelly's are one of the stories where it's like, it's real easy to have not made that special. In my eyes, there's a fine line where you can be like, here's a, you know, familiar tale. Now this is the way you go for excellence and the straight and narrow path is not. That might be a terrible analogy, but that's all I got right now. <laughs> so basically it's, it's different settings um it's uh like the western expansion you know it, it's stuff that they did in california it's um it's uh, of course you know texas but you got like montana and, and prairie and winter settings it's not just uh the desert and cowboys and and gunslingers anything else to to swing in here okay so i'll try not to make it like too academic i'll try to make this a little bit fun but so john trudy in his anatomy of story and his story genres talks about the Western as being about civilization. And I'm inclined to agree. That for me is the defining feature of a Western civilization or lack thereof. The thing is, most of the plots of your favorite Westerns, whether they're robbers, Native Americans, this, that, the cruelty of the desert, something that's a little more nature focused, like Blood Meridian, all of these have this common theme that they really couldn't take place in a civilized, civilized, quote unquote, society without the structures of authority, you start to see this inhumanity. And I think that's why so many Westerns also talk about the atrocities that were committed against Native Americans, because not just were they, they were occurring at the same time, certainly yes, but it's also a way of highlighting how savage human beings are when we take all of these barriers. That's why personally, I think Westerns are making a big comeback. I'm a little biased, so, most people don't know this, but I live in the eastern side of Washington, and it's a desert. We get nine inches of rain a year. It's covered with sagebrush, and the um, areas with irrigation are agricultural. We have a lot of wine grapes, orchards. It's it's beautiful, but it's very dry. So it's literally like the Wild West, you know, goat heads, stickers, I have family that's from the real deep countryside of Eastern Washington. And when I'm around my extended family, I start using the ains and the gunnas and I start like kicking up that. But for me, I think the reason we're seeing a Western resurgence is because it's kind of our current cultural zeitgeist. That's kind of what we are going through as a species collectively, the question of civilization. Really, to me, we're starting to lose faith, everyone across the border, no matter what you believe, everyone is losing faith in the structures that we've put up. For so many different reasons, this idea, I mean, even capitalism, 
people are starting to reconsider whether that's a really a good idea, whether it's actually going to help. And I also think in addition to that, we're starting to see the cost in nature with climate change. So another big theme of the Western is this idea, you know, because of manifest destiny, they're going out into areas of the US that are previously uncharted. They don't know what to expect nature-wise. They're going to a climate that they don't know. And the thing is, as climate change ramps up and we're really starting to see all of these disasters hit and we're starting to see all of these things get worse and worse and worse. I mean, I'm not trying to sound like a Debbie Downer, but I really do think we're starting to see nature as a little more unfamiliar. We're, we're going into uncharted territory. And personally, that's why I think Westerns are starting to make a comeback. That's a fantastic answer. Um, I think uh, when I was trying to grapple with this myself, I was trying to think about how the there's there's ostensibly, and y'all help me out here because I might have this a little bit off, but the three types of conflict in the story are man versus man, man versus beast, or man versus nature, or something like that, right? Well, there's man versus God, too. Versus man, man versus self man versus self okay so there's five okay i was i was off um but with these western horrors it brings us back to a time where you are surrounded by that man versus nature and that's just one of the things that you are going to have to grapple with every single day and then you add in other weird strange elements also and just like everything gets bar so fast it reminds me of and this is cool because um we're talking about a brendan lafaro book in just a minute but when Brendan LaFaro and I did an episode about Texan horror, we got into that a little bit too. Just this idea of being out in the middle of the nature with no civilization around, nobody to help. It's just you versus whatever thing you run into. Um, and it feels like Western horror really leans into that. So perfect. Um, and then Drew, you gave us a perfect segue here to the next question I was going to ask was, why are we seeing such a resurgence in this? Um, just kind of looking around at the at the horror um, bookshelves right now we've got death's head press that has been doing magpie coffin and all the books that have followed after that we've got koi hall i know Haley piper has a horror western coming out there are horror westerns just everywhere right now um brianna any other horror westerns you want to give a quick shout out to before we dive into stuff or anything else you want to add on to why we're kind of seeing horror westerns have their moment right now i know zach rosenberg had a western come out um hungers as old as hungers this, old this land yes yes the minute you said it i was like okay so yes i would like to shout out uh my friend zach's book hungers as old as this land that's another excellent one nice um and i i was just gonna say i don't have anything else to add i think drew covered it perfectly um it's just kind of you know nature is taking back what is its own and we kind of are being thrown into a less civilized time. So I think, yeah, I agree that it just makes sense that people are gravitating more toward Westerns now because that's kind of what our world is becoming. Okay, so then it feels like a good time to start adding in our specific topics so we can talk about like scenes and characters and things to add to this discussion to flush it out some. So um, the order we'll do these in and for listeners, if you're trying to avoid spoilers for this stuff, we're going to hit Bone Tomahawk, the movie first, um, and then we're going to go into Brendan LaFaro's book, Noose, and then we'll come to the anthology right at the end. Um, that is coming out. Do you all know the day that it's coming out? I know September something. September 26th, I believe. Okay. Yes. Uh, the anthology that's coming out, September 26th. But we'll we'll build up to that one since that is going to be all spoilers for everybody. But starting with Bone Tomahawk. So um, do either of y'all want to set the premise for this movie for our listeners? Uh, maybe tell us why we picked it for this episode. Um, what What is Bone Tomahawk and why is it a good example of a horror Western? I suggested it because I, I've only seen it last year. It's just so different. It's it's really brutal. And, uh, you know, it covers a little bit of all the kind of, you know, bad stuff, the racism against like the the Native Americans or, or Mexican uh, people from Mexico. Remember that one scene where uh, I think he's at night and he's just in his mind. I don't I don't know if it's because he's Mexican, but it kind of felt that way in his mind. He, he just doesn't know if the guy's going to slit his throat if he's true to his word. Like, you know, I don't think most of us think of that on a day to day basis, but out there. 
I don't know. I am not a good, concise speaker as I am a writer. So short answer. It's a weird movie. It's kind of like what I was saying earlier about how it could easily not be special. But I think it took a lot of chances on just the stuff that it left out, like uh, the Candyman or, or Hellraiser. You know, there are two movies where they'll show you enough, but they don't spoon feed you the deeper meaning. And that's yeah. what this one does. Nice. Okay, so a couple of things I want to dive into here. Drew's mentioned this, and you just mentioned it too, so I, I feel like it's a good starting point for our conversation. In this movie, um, there is, it, it's really bad with one character, but it's kind of prevalent throughout everything. Um, there is just casual and or very concentrated racism, just like thrown around this thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, it is it is racism towards the Mexican in the group. It is racism towards the Native Americans that they're going up against out in the wilderness. Um, it's kind of a tricky thing to talk about straight out of the gates with horror westerns, but it's worth talking about, I think. Um, when you are writing a genre piece like this uh, or or a period piece like this, and there is something as deeply concentrated as the racism in the West in this time period. At what lengths should a story accept that and work it into its storytelling? Um, and at what point should kind of modern sensibilities take over and us be like, okay, this is not okay. Um, it, it wasn't okay back then. It's certainly not okay now. And we need to, we need to dry this down. Like where do y'all sit on that whole conversation? And Kind of what's the trick with approaching something like this honestly, but also respectfully? Because I think this movie misses in a couple of places, for me at least. Yeah. It was um, definitely kind of... So for me, yes, with the Western, it's like, okay, you have to be very wary of people you don't know. You have to assume there's animosity. But for me, the line where the characters really crossed it into, and I think the movie was trying to deliberately show this and show that these people were not just being prepared woodsmen out in the middle of the West, was um, all of the interactions they have with the Native American professor who they go to for knowledge about what's possibly happening. They're just very very I don't even want to do very racist towards this professor this individual and clearly this and you know this professor is not just taking it he's clearly not happy um but he gives them good information I mean he doesn't deliberately lie to them he doesn't try to mislead them he doesn't try to sabotage their mission he's just very like don't do it these people are going to eat you which is a pretty fair thing to say to someone I mean so that for me, and I, again, I'm sure that's why the movie had this Native American professor, you know, the show that these characters were not just, they had to go out of their way to be racist towards these Native Americans. Mm. I just wish, and with the modern sensibility, they would have done a little bit more with it other than to just say, well, this is a thing. This is how it happens. It's like, okay, yes, we know we can open a history book, but what are you doing with this from a story standpoint? Pat, you want to jump in? I don't think my answer is a popular one, and I'm not, this isn't a judgment towards the opposing view, just to make that clear, uh, but I don't think you should have rules with me, me and specifically like with historical fiction, something that grinds my gears, uh, Peter Griffin, but what kind of like irritates me as a reader I don't really care if other writers do it. Like, I'm not going to tell them how to write. That That's not cool. But it, it kind of bugs me as a reader when someone tries to implement 1990s train of thought or, or you know, mode of thought in the 60s or, or whatever. And in this case, I see a lot of, like, American 21st century um, ideas and ideologies forced into historic, um, you know, ideologies. And you can say, well, can they do this or that? Like, there's there's so many different people, so many different views. So basically, I'm just saying, like, my view, I write historical fiction. I love it. I respect it. Um, I don't uh, really try to say, like, I'm talking for this person or that. But 
I just uh, try to tell the truth. And sometimes that's not popular language or nice things, but to get the point across, to make people feel, I feel like you got to uh, fall in love with a character or at least try to connect with them. Even if, look, even if they're racist, like Joe Lansdale was telling me a story where they were people that he converted by his happy Leonard stories. You know, um, one's a gay black man that fought in Vietnam and the other one's this white, looks like a redneck, just a chill guy. They're best buddies. Um, he converted this one racist guy because he could connect with it. And I think that's what books do or should do. They should tell the truth. It's going to hurt. It's going to offend you because that's what life is. Um, I don't think that uh, one group should not be allowed to write another, as long as you're not purposely being hateful. That's basically my long-winded answer. You make the reader fall in love with your character and then to show, you know, racism in this case, you show something terrible happen because it's going to hurt. And that's how you know that I don't want that to happen in reality. So that's, that's my point of view. That's why I can't like write that on Twitter because it's not, it's too hard to say, but, uh, we shouldn't whitewash history. We shouldn't I, paint over the atrocities we've done in the past or the way we've dehumanized other people because I, mean, I agree with you, Pat. What, what about these things? We set the path and pretend they didn't happen. We're really just setting the stage for them to happen again. Yeah. Cause like, what about not even a hundred years? I see on, I don't, I hope this isn't real, but I see like on TikTok that there's these younger kids that don't know what Nazis were or don't know about the Holocaust. Like, that's mm-hmm. fucking terrifying. Six million people mm-hmm. died. Mm-hmm. And, and guess what? I'm not going to dive into politics, but it's kind of scary seeing shit happen right now. So I'm just, yeah. how, how do you, how do you know about that? Like I, me and my wife went to the, uh, this is way off the beaten path. So tell me to shut the hell up if you want. But mm-hmm. I'll, I'll end on this. Me and my wife went to Washington, DC a couple mm-hmm. years ago. Loved it. But uh it's weird to wear it this way, but our favorite attraction was the Holocaust Museum. Covered Nazi Germany and the Jewish people. And then it also covered Syria, their current Holocaust. And uh, mm-hmm. it's crazy, the shit that's going on there. But um, it's terrible. It's sad. It makes you just, it beats down your soul. And uh, you just kind of invest yourself from that point emotionally. So that's my very long way of saying what Drew said in like two sentences. So people are, even the people that know about the Holocaust don't know about the hundreds of years of blood libel and anti-Semitism and dehumanization that led up to the Holocaust. There, there you go. See, they That's don't know how it point. happened. That's the thing. We can't just know that something happened. We need to pick apart how and why it happened or we're doomed to repeat it. Bree, you want to jump in? Yeah, my approach is always just, you know, you don't want to whitewash history. If it happened, it happened. It needs to be included so that, again, we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. At the same time, I would say that, and I this is my philosophy as a white author, I don't write stories that are focused on race. Like, I don't write stories that the whole overarching theme is race, um, because I, I can't speak to that, the full experience of racism as a white woman. And I don't want to accidentally provide some kind of representation that could be harmful to someone else. Um, So I think it is a fine line in terms of, you know, you don't want to whitewash. Um, You also don't want to be harmful, whether on purpose or accidentally. So it is it is very tricky to navigate, especially in, I would say, a more historical setting. I I don't know if I have anything to add that y'all didn't already hit. Um, Keep keep it honest to what was going on because otherwise you're doing a disservice. Okay. Other thing about this movie that I wanted to dive into, and this is a lot more storycraft and a lot less like sociopolitical. Um, Something about Bone Tomahawk and something I see with a lot of Westerns, horror or otherwise, um, is they like to utilize the ensemble cast a lot. Um, With Bone Tomahawk, it was an ensemble cast of protagonists. Um, We'll we'll see the other side of this coin in just a second. But something that I really appreciated about the movie was how it did, it it took its time to really introduce each member of the cast to us to get us invested in them before the shit started hitting the fan. Um, We got Patrick Wilson with his wife and like meeting them a little bit. We got Kurt Russell with the sheriff and meeting him a little bit. And we we got these little glimpses into everybody before they took off. 
Um, even like even the the horrible racist dude kind of got his moment for us to not sympathize with him, but at least to understand him. Um, and then things took off from there. But I don't know. Uh, do y'all have any ideas about what makes a good ensemble cast, especially in the in the lens of a horror western here? I would say, and this is less of a western thing and more of a storycraft thing. To have any good ensemble cast that's going to keep a reader invested, to keep a viewer like glued to the screen, they need to have different motives or very different personalities because you know at some point there's going to be a clash. You know at some point there's going to be conflict between the members of the cast and conflict keeps you interested. It keeps the story moving. It opens the door for character development. Sorry, there's like a bug. And emotional development too as the plot continues. Just because these people are banded together for one common purpose doesn't mean that they don't have different reasons to achieve that purpose. One member of this ensemble cast, let's say they're going to kill the bandits. Well, maybe one member had his wife get killed by these bandits. Maybe one member has a very firm religious conviction that he's like a cult leader or something. He needs to go out and destroy these bandits. Maybe someone else is going to have his whole livelihood ruined. You see what I mean? Yeah, and I, th I think we get that in Bone Tomahawk, right? Patrick Wilson, mm -hmm. his wife, Kurt Russell's going out there for justice. Uh, mm -hmm. The Native Americans going along with them because these idiots are going to go get killed out in the desert if he doesn't. Mm -hmm. The racist guy, I don't remember why the racist guy was tagging along, probably money or something like that. But um, so they're going out here into the desert and they're they're going after this what are we going to call them? I don't think tribe is quite the right word, but this this offshoot uh, group of Native Americans that are described in one of the most monstrous ways possible. They call them the troglodytes. Let me see if I can find Yeah, that sounds right. Their description of them down. Troglodytes. One of the characters says to the guide that they're that they're going after the Native Americans or they're going after the Indians, and he corrects them and he says they're not they're not like us. They're an incestuous offshoot of the bloodline mm -hmm. of monsters. They're cannibals that eat their own mothers while they're young, which is mm -hmm. an awesome pitch for a big bad. What makes these things so scary in this movie? We're we're to the horror part now. What makes these things so scary in this movie? Um, Pat, you want to kick us off? Yeah. Uh, well, they're the sounds they make are not what you expect a person to make. Like there's real tribes and like you know the Amazon that do that to make uh, when they're surrounding you, they make sounds of animals so they communicate that way so they don't people don't think that they're people coming to surround them. So that's terrifying. And then you see them. I don't know, man. I shit my pants. <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna pretend i'm gonna beat him up i would die a terrible death that's why <laughs> it, it's funny because i remember watching the movie and when they were like describing the people i was like oh this guy's just a racist like they're probably just normal people and then obviously you get to like the reveal and you're like oh yes he's a racist but also these these people are very scary i don't want to say subhuman because again that gets kind of into the weeds of the racist uh, overtone and whatnot but yeah they're they weren't anything like I expected I kind of thought it, the movie was taking like an otherness approach and that again they would just be regular people but they are very much not regular people and they are terrifying yeah Drew I don't know man I kept waiting for the twist that they weren't Native Americans they were normal like white people that were you know had the same thing you know the clay the uh, implants in their windpipes so they can make the sounds, the inhuman screeching. I kept waiting for that twist. I was like glued to my screen. I was like, oh my God, this is what they're going to do. They're going to like, the you know, see some Native Americans. They're going to automatically assume that these are the cannibals. But really, these Native Americans are trying to keep them away from the cannibals. They go into the cave. Bam. And then, you know, they have this horrifying reveal that, oh my God. These are white people. They can be just as inhuman and savage, quote unquote, as these Native Americans. If not, oh my gosh, the Native Americans were not the bad guys. We shouldn't have just assumed that they were savage. Like I was so waiting for that. And I was actually also waiting for the dude that had gone into town initially to betray them. 
I thought there was going to be a whole thing where it was like, oh, he was secretly a member of the tribe the whole time. And this is what they do. They lure people out to this cave. They, that's one of their, like, I was so waiting for that. I was so freaking stoked. And then when they came out and it was kind of like, oh, these are just, there's no twist. These are just like an offshoot of a Native American tribe. This is just, I was a little disappointed. Like, yeah, I was scared. Don't get me wrong. When they did the screeching, I was scared shitless, but I was a little bit like, oh, is this it? Like, is this the movie? Is this? Yeah, they played it all straight, right? The, the, mm -hmm. Yeah. Twist. There wasn't any, like, they kept hinting at mysticism or something like that, and it just never really unraveled. Um, and this is a perfect segue to news. God, I need to just take this, and we need to just go into news right now. Um, but I do want to talk about The Kill, the the scene that I think everybody knows this movie for if they've watched it. I've watched a lot of gnarly kills in movies, and this one is top-notch uh terrifier two levels of stuff after a, a long movie of just playing it very straight and kind of toned down anybody want to talk about the kill here i mean horrible i went to the movies with my mom to see this no and yeah that was a mistake it only would have been worse if i'd gone with my dad for obvious reasons yeah it hurt me to watch um so i'm sure you know it must have been a terrible way to go and uh yeah it's funny because i couldn't remember different parts of the movie but i sure as hell remember that scene because <laughs> it's like oh my god and i just remember i wanted to tell people about it but i couldn't think of how to you know you can't just be like hey did you guys see the scene where the guy gets like scalped and he gets like his genitals hacked off and like it's not polite conversation to make so <laughs> i think I just like filed it away and my brain helped me forget about it but talking about it now I'm like oh yeah that's why I haven't watched the movie since it came out because I don't want to see that again <laughs> um and I feel bad for laughing because it is genuinely terrifying but it's like a laugh to keep from crying situation yeah yeah all right so we we have addressed the kill I would like to power into noose now um and if we could Pat, I know you are really good friends with Brennan, so um, I want to throw this to you. Could you introduce our listeners to Noose? What is this book about generally, and where does it fit in the horror westerns genre? Sure, yeah. It's about uh, Rory Daggett, and it's also about the uh, antagonist. His name's uh, George Noose Holcomb. He, uh, well, they tried to hang him, and didn't happen. He was a bad guy, did a lot of bad things, and Rory puts him in his place. That's the best way I can put it. With Also, no, that's not true. I can do better. It is Batman mixed in the Old West. And he said this before, probably. But, I mean, like, there's villains uh, like the Joker, Bane. Another one is, um, oh, who is? There's one with yeah. and chemicals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also a witch. <laughs> I would never have put that Batman description together before, but that's exactly what it is. It is an old West, like run running through the rogues gallery. Yeah. But and uh, I will never not sound biased because I, I flat out said he's one of my best friends and uh, it's good. He's a good writer. And so the sequel is really good. I'm impressed. I want to know a little bit about the sequel after we stop recording, because I don't know how much of that he wants public yet, but... I'm not going to say anything. It comes out next year. I'm just saying it's a sequel. But let's... I, I want to focus on that rogues gallery thing for a little bit here, because we just talked about the ensemble cast and what it takes to put an, a good ensemble together. Let's talk about a bad ensemble. Not bad in the sense that it's not enjoyable, but bad as in they're they're fucking evil um so i i think brendan takes the exact opposite approach to news as we saw in bone tomahawk where he's got an ensemble cast but we intentionally don't know very much about them they're these mysterious figures that rory is going and hunting down one by one but all of them are so fascinating even when you don't get to know anything about them mm -hmm. um drew do you want to go ahead and talk to us about like what maybe what the trick is here to crafting a cool villain. And if we've got any guesses about how he made five cool villains in one book, six, five. 
Six. Um, a bunch well, of cool villains in one book. <laughs> a lot of cool villains. Well, one, they have believable motivations. Like, yeah, we don't know a lot about them, but most of what we're told it, or given, you know, as like a little Easter egg to imply their motivation, it's why they're doing it. Whether it's for money, whether it's for revenge, whether it's because and two of the villains are in love and he has a little bit of a novella novelette story at the end of news that kind of little prequel goes into their little relationship i think what it's also important in crafting a good villain is to point out that a lot of villains were victimized in the past providing fuel for their motivation it not only gives us sympathy as a reader for the villain which gives them humanity it also lets us see, like, okay, anyone is capable of being a villain. It's all about morally what decisions you make. Everyone is a victim at some point in our lives. But the real choice is, do I take that and decide to become a villain? Or do I take what was given to me and use that to do what's morally right and true and good? That's the real difference. And I think what makes the ones in you so interesting and intriguing is the fact that we're not given very much about them. And that we're... They're powerful. The people in Bone Tomahawk, our little ensemble cast, we're rooting for them partly because all of them in some way, shape or form have some kind of disability, disablement. None of these people are strong, young, strapping men that are ready to go take on the evil bad guys. You know, one of them is a broken leg. One of them is just kind of a jerk. One of them is old. You know, one of them is pretty naive. In Noose, this ensemble cast, all of these people are scary as shit because they seem very competent. Rory almost dies like a number of times. So many times. So many close calls. They know what they're doing. They know what they want to do. They aren't morally bound by certain conventions, so they will do things and make certain decisions that, quote unquote, a lot of moral people would not be able to make in those circumstances. Um, but those are the tricks, in my opinion, to creating a compelling villain and a compelling ensemble villain cast. It's all in the humanity. And uh, to add on to that, I would say that what makes Noose successful is that the villains feel formidable. They feel real, but, you know, there's also Rory does struggle and he does almost succumb to them several times. And I think too often I see, you know, people have a villain and you're like, okay, well, it's obvious that the good guy is going to win out against the villain, but in news, it's, I feel like I never really knew if he was going to win or not. And uh, that's definitely the kind of power imbalance that you want between your heroes and your villains. Um, and then one more thing I want to talk about with news is we get a train robbery. Uh, one of the staples of the horror Western genre. We're, we're back on the genre now. I don't really have a question about this. I just want to talk about the train robbery for a minute. Anybody want to talk about the train robbery? It was a good opener. It was a damn good opener. Noose is scary as shit in it. The, the classic horse is on a train. Shit. Yeah. Okay, for modern day viewers, that's like having a shooting take place on an airplane in mid-flight. These people, they can't jump out. You're in a trapped enclosed space. Death is coming up the aisle, seat by seat by seat. And he does, and death, death is not impartial. That makes it scarier. Death has an active interest in seeing you struggle and die. Like, that's terrifying. That's worse. And it's like, that's horrifying. No, I read that opening scene and I was just like, and I read a lot of horror. I love horror. And the fact that that's, that's the scene that he chooses to set the stage, you're just like, oh shit, I need to hang on. Yeah. This this thing is a very short, very tight, I think it's proper to call it a novella. Um, but from that train robbery on, it is just, it is just go from then on out. And it, it starts, it starts everything off with a bang. Okay. So... One more thing, and I'm going to use this as kind of like a launch point to get into the anthology finally, because we're, we've been talking for a while and we haven't even hit the anthology yet. I want to spend a bunch of time there. But in Bone Tomahawk, everything seems very grounded in reality. And like we were talking about, there was this opportunity for kind of a twist to make it a little bit mystical, and they just chose not to go there. Noose, we get a lot of mysticism built in here. There, There's literally a witch casting spells and illusions and stuff, and it, it's cool. 
And then we get y'all's anthology. Um, Pat, can you help me out here? What is the what is the subtitle for it? It's Hot Iron and Cold Blood, an anthology of the Weird West. The Weird West, and it gets so weird. Um, y'all, y'all take all of the uh, all the uh, kind of quirky magic of Noose and just go. We we can go to an eleven. And all three of you did it, which is insane to me. Um, I was expecting one of the three of your stories to be like the come down, like the, okay, here's the normal one. Nope, fuck that. <laughs> um, so I guess I don't I don't know what order I want to do this in. Maybe Pat, let's let's give you the stage first here with where did the idea for this anthology come from? Um, how did you kind of pull the stories in together for this thing? What what was the elevator pitch here? Uh, I wrote I wrote this in the afterward, so I don't know if I'm going to cover the same thing, but uh, I submitted to this publisher that ended up closing down. They had at the time an anthology for, I think it was Splatterpunk Westerns, and I, I was like, all right, I'm you know fuck it, I'll I'll try, and it was an all right story. But then I had Kenzie Jennings and and Brennan beta read it and um made it nice and tight and cut all the unnecessary stuff in the beginning to make it what it became. And uh, I like the story. The publisher closed. I didn't see any other openings. So I literally, as soon as I knew they closed, I messaged Patrick C. Harrison the third, who was the founder of Death's Head Press. And I just said, hey, man, are you going to be uh, doing an anthology? Because he was the first publisher to give me personal feedback. You don't forget that. Like that, most publishers don't do that. And that, you know, that's not a knock on them. But um, long story short, he read my story, emailed me like the next day and said, no, we don't have anything, any anthologies in mind, but um, yours would make the first cut. I had nothing to lose. So I just said, you know, fuck it. I said, um, I, I know Ed Lee's story was going to be in that one. It's uh, not, a, it's a reissue. And then I know Joe Lansdale, who I'm friends with both the guys. So I just felt comfortable enough to say this. I'm like, I'm sure that you could get them to lead it. And then eventually uh, I had, I'm the first story in there. So I wasn't supposed to edit it. I don't know why I emailed Pat, but I said, can I edit it with you? And um, my pitch, since I have no track record, I said, I'll do it for free. And, uh, I think that's kind of what maybe got me because uh, in it to edit it because they um, I don't think I've said this publicly. So this is the first this is going to be out there before it's on my show. And I don't even think I'll say it on there. But uh, I, I don't think they maybe had any other reason to pick it besides like I had a good pitch. There was Ed Lee and uh, they loved him and Joe Lansdale. And then. I, for some reason, don't know why, I got full creative control with the first uh, team behind Death Said Press. Now there's a new team that took over and uh, for the publishers. And um, I got full creative control, and I invited who I wanted to invite. Bree was one of the very first people I asked. Uh, love her. She's a good friend, good writer, and she's reliable. And... Um, it's like John Jonathan Mayberry said, I'm not a fan of working with Prima Donna's and, and Bree's one of the most professional people I've met, like ever. And then people said yes. Uh, I had an open call. I read through all the submissions. Right off the bat, Drew's was like, holy fuck. I'm thinking, like, I'm I'm not trying to be obnoxious, but I'm like, did I just find like a brand new Clive Barker? Um, yeah, that's what that story kind of reminds me of, his his material. And then I got a bunch of other stories and the press uh, changed publish like the teams. And I, there was like two times, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't think the book would happen. Even everyone got paid, but it took like two years from when this started to when it's actually getting published. It was supposed to get published last year. Um, but we got a great new, you know, team behind Death Said Press. Um, the cover's incredible. Blew me away. Yeah. Uh, Robert Samellan, I think that's how you say his name. 
and there's a lot of really great people bourbon it and there's a lot of good talk about it so um i got to do it with older friends like brie or brennan and i got to do it with new friends like like uh big drew and um vivian castley so i couldn't have asked for a better experience and guess what i i I like kind of want to cry with Al, like Bree, Drew, even Al going back. Everyone sent back really nice feedback. Like, I didn't know if I was being overzealous. I left a lot of notes, but end of the day, I'm like, if Bree was like, fuck that, I don't want you to say it like that. But for a Drew were to say, like, I don't want this change, I would say, okay. The only thing that I kind of would stick to, and no one was like against this, was uh, tautology, like, uh, you raise his hand up. Something that doesn't need to be said. You know, I do that shit a lot. I catch it during edits, but yeah. Let's dive into a couple of the stories now. So, Brianna, uh, let's start with you. Let's drink deep from the waters of Dread Creek, or let's not. Um, what is the quick pitch for your story from this anthology? Uh, Where did your idea come from? And I guess, what was it like getting involved in this thing? So... The easiest way to pitch it is Red Dead Redemption 2 meets, uh, uh, not Cabin in the Woods, Cabin Fever. Yep. So Red Dead Redemption 2 meets Cabin Fever. So like Pat said, this now defunct press extended an invitation to me. And I'm kind of bummed because it was like my first official anthology invite. And then, of course, you know, they ended up going under. But uh, and I was just like, you know, I've never written a weird Western. I've never written Western horror in any capacity, but I do want to try it. Um, and then they, when they went away, I was kind of bummed. And uh, Patrick reached out to me and told me, you know, we're putting this thing together. It's going to happen. I'd still love your story. And it's funny that, Pat, you said that it was like two years ago or a few years ago, because now Something I remember. Like yeah. I So when I got engaged, it was... Um, my fiance and I were at Disney World and I remember we were waiting in line for Rise of the Resistance and on my phone in Google Docs, I was like outlining my story because we were in the line for like two hours. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it's crazy that it's been that long, but I had a lot of fun with it. It's typically I don't go into the natural world as much in, in my stuff. So it was fun to kind of delve into that aspect. Um I don't know why I thought it would be nice to write about any kind of sickness, considering what we just came out of. But it, I've been dying to write really, really nasty, bloody, hor- bloody body horror, and that's that's all the story is. Yeah, yeah, you you got your opportunity. <laughs> um, it, it yes, um, the cabin fever connection. If anybody, without spoiling the story itself. Um, that that's the vibe you're walking into here it is a western cabin fever um so next up drew uh kind of same question what is the short pitch for your story where'd the idea come from what was it like working on the anthology um well i don't normally do a lot of short stories so this was one of the first acceptances i ever had to any anthology like i had just started like getting out there you know just starting social media just starting i'm I'm a hermit i kind of just live in my little house with all my plants all my you know art and that kind of thing so man this one is hard to pitch to body horror freakish body horror people find love in an old western town and when the authorities come they find revenge and what i like about this story i think personally is that i i I tried so when i written it initially one of the characters the male who is um who decides to take matters into his own hands shiner he is a transgender male and a lot of people like reading that didn't necessarily I had somebody, I think you showed the story to Gretchen Felker Martin, like you sent it to her and she, she picked up on it, but a lot of people didn't catch that subtext because I'm very, I imply a lot of things, but the theme, even if they don't catch that subtext specifically, the theme of being other, of being different and being persecuted for it is still really strong. 
sorry, I, I did a terrible pitch, but it's just so weird. So I guess. Tell me what the title is. Old World Birds. Yeah. It's... Well, it was kind of a thing back then and you don't see it anymore. Now people would talk about being from the old world or the new world, you know, new world being the Americas or old world being Europe. So it was kind of also a metaphor for immigration, like, you know, being an immigrant, being other, not being from this. But I took that and I kind of tilted it on its axis a little bit. I was like, okay, so these people, what if they're actually from a different like dimension? They're sort of from this, it's almost like Narnia-esque where they're from this different place, this almost like fairy tale-esque land and now they're here and they're stuck. And they're kind of just like doing the best they can to live. And they can't even do that. They do their best to fit into the societal mold that they're given. But even when they mostly fit in, they're still persecuted. And they're still... <sighs> Sorry, I could... I'm just rambling right now. <laughs> no, this is good. And it's giving me a lot of thoughts about kind of where we started the episode on and where we've gotten to now with where we started. It was, we've just kind of got this setting and this theme and let's just go with that. But there's room for more exploration here. I think what you hit on in this story is a really cool perspective of in Westerns, there is so much demonization of the other, just like mm -hmm. whatever other it is that we're talking about in that story or another. So you take that otherness and you make them the heroes and make them having to like push back against that otherness that's so prevalent in this setting and in this uh, subgenre. Um, I, I thought it was just a really smart connection of those things. And then you do the body horror excellently. Um, I Yeah, and the twist at the ending. <laughs> yeah i like that you also did the the nasty body horror oh thank you yeah that's kind of my it's not like my specialty yet but um it, it's something that comes up in everything i write well i mean being a human in and of itself i mean we're trapped in bodies that age and decay and die and do all kinds of things outside of our control like you could wake up tomorrow with a thyroid disease that would just like radically change your body shape rapidly you could wake up tomorrow and have like a brain tumor you could wake up and have like I can list so many weird things. There are parasites that live in your eyelashes. There are dust mites that nope. feast on the dust that comes off of your skin. Like being a human being in a flesh is in of itself body horror. And I think we kind of just have spent in this modern society, we, we just really sanitize that. We kind of ignore it. We don't like to think about that except in our fiction. And that's why I think body horror is so popular as a genre. Uh, I, I both of both you and Bree have kind of said like, oh, body horror is not my usual thing or horror Westerns aren't my usual thing. And yet you both just nailed these stories. Um, so I guess one more question for the pair of you before I before I point the camera back at Pat. Um, what advice would you have after going through this um, for another person that wants to write a story that's a little outside of their comfort zone? Um, they, they're thinking about diving into body horror and they've never really written it before, or they're thinking about writing a horror Western and they've never really written it before. Um, any advice after going through the ringer once yourselves? Yeah, I, I just say, you know, focus on what about the story is most interested, interesting to you and don't necessarily worry about you know like oh well it's going to be a western so I have to make sure it's in the desert and there have to be cowboys and horses you know if you just write down the bones of the story you can always add that step in later if it serves a story but the idea of the weird western encompasses so many different things that you know I I don't want anyone to put themselves in a box just because they think they need to fit a certain cliche for lack of a better word um whatever most excites you about your story that's what you should focus on and you know maybe don't worry so much about nailing the, the tiny little details like you know maybe you don't know what a certain saddle is called or you don't know all these how all these old ghost towns work or anything like that but if you can convey the truth of your characters and the truth of the story that's what will ultimately shine through and the only other piece of advice I have is you won't really know if you're any good at it until you try it. And the only way to get better at it, if you're not good at it, is to keep doing it. 
group? I would just say, and this is more of a writing advice thing in general, don't worry so much about the details, worry about the human beats of the story. Don't worry so much about whether, kind of tagging on to what you said, Brie, as long as you get the fundamental raw humanity into that story, the reader will excuse just about anything else. It's when writers try and kind of bypass that humanity or they try to make it really artsy and they kind of try to just contort it or make it into some like weird, trippy exploration of self, like, you know, Freudian bullshit. So when we forget what makes us human, that's when stories fail. That's when people start putting their heads up their own asses. And that's when the writing loses its magic, in my opinion. All right, Pat, we're back to you. So you also have a story in here. Uh, we haven't talked about it yet, but let's look into the light for just a second. Um, what is your story about in here? Uh, it's called It Calls. It's a mother and daughter in a Montana, Montana prairie. And a fallen light crashes into a their lake. And it reveals things that should not be. As of, I don't know what else to say without... <laughs> Without spoiling the whole thing, right? Your yours is kind of hard to hard to lay down the story beach without like, unraveling. <laughs> There's a scene in there that I really hope is a what the fuck moment. I played a little. Me. I just like flinched. I was like, shh. <laughs> a lot of writers would not have had the guts to do that. I'll say oh. it. Wow, thanks for that. I appreciate that. Holy shit, that means a lot. Um, it I write about families a lot, and it's because like this isn't anything special or unique. But my biggest fear before it was a parent is just like kind of you know bad stuff happening to insert whoever you know I'm close to, and now it's the same as a parent. Only it's focused on my kids more heavily, and I seem to write about that a lot. Um. Because I'd rather, I guess, like, mentally prepare for it. You know, I hope nothing bad ever happens. But I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong. But that's, I don't know what else to think of it. So, so I don't think I'm a crazy bastard. I just write it down. <laughs> um, You're a parent. You're writing about your greatest fear when you write about horror. And, of course, the first thing that's going to spring to your mind is, what if something happens to my kid? Yeah. It's a shift that you tend to see a lot in writers when they become parents. That's what I've noticed, at least. That's a good point. And the only other thing I wanted to add is John Langan's The Fisherman was a big inspiration for me. Um, I just really love John's work. And and he has this one, uh, I don't know if this is going to spoil it, but let's see. He has this one behemoth, I think he were, or maybe he used another word, but the imagery he used, I'm like, that's really cool. And then I kind of thought about that with my light. <laughs> it could be anything you want. Like with Drew's story, I wanted to say that with hers personally, um, I didn't know it was like queer horror until she said it like casually to me. I'm like, oh, well, that's cool. Because like it can mean a lot of stuff. Um, for me, I mean, I'm, I got ADHD super bad. And uh, I, I can relate to that. I would never fit in with... Um, you know most guys and because like i I'm, I'm not like making fun of people all the time stuff for example like a lot of annoying guys do and i felt like that i don't know if it's because of the adhd but i feel like the outsider a lot of us do though in the horror world i know that um that's why we're friends <laughs> we we tend to attract the outcasts and the rejects don't we uh <laughs> the losers club <laughs> Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so any more thoughts about this anthology? Um, any, I guess let me let me throw this question out. Uh, any other stories in the anthology that we want to kind of talk up for a second to be like, you guys have to pick up this anthology because so-and-so wrote this book? Uh, Owl, and this is, I kind of wanted to mention this when we were talking about Bone Tomahawk. Owl going back's short story really, really goes into the Native American experience. And he addresses the racism at the time without excusing it. And there's of course, you know, a twist and there's all of that. And um, yeah, I really liked Owl going backstory. 
Um, there are so many good stories in this anthology. There's not like a single one I can think of that's a dud. I loved yours, Brie. I was just like cringing the whole time. I was just like, oh. yeah, I want to say all of them. And of course, yours too, Pat. As I've said. Oh, nice. Al, going back, I was nervous to ask him, and I don't get nervous too much, but like Al has a certain presence about presence about him. Really nice guy, easy to talk to, but like he's he's got an impressive background, and I try not letting that shit like intimidate me. But there's some people like him and another writer like him, um, who's a First Nations, I forget what part of Canada, but Wabgishig uh, uh, Rice is another one. Their storytelling is just, oh my God, I kind of get a little shy around them. Again, super nice guys, really easy to talk to, but um, I didn't know if he'd say yes. And then he replied and he said he would, and he had some something he was doing for Marvel before that. I'm like, yay. <laughs> no big deal this is only my first time <laughs> so yeah nice Bree, any you want to throw out none that haven't already been mentioned um i think i i think a lot of people will like this anthology because there's there's a wide variety of stories there's a wide variety of i'd say you know there's there's authors you've heard of and maybe a lot of new authors that whose work you will want to check out after this and uh, even if you don't think you like the Weird West, you can probably find one or two stories to get into. Nice. Good pitch. And then for the topic of the day in general with horror westerns, I know there is a lot we didn't talk about. Um, but uh, anything standing out in your mind specifically that you're like, ah, I really wanted to, to dig into that today. Choose your own question. <laughs> no, um, other than... I'm I'm really glad that I got the chance to do this because now I want to write a horror western. So I I might actually I might actually do that at some point. Cool. Amazing. Nothing to add on the genre with the book though. I really I wanted to get people that you wouldn't expect. Like um they never said this. The publisher is the first uh Pat and Jared. They never said this, but like I could tell with some people submitting that they we're kind of expecting some some of the you know people that you may think would be in a splatter western, and I do it because I'm thinking like no, I don't want the same names in there. But um, mo here I I'll do it with a tease. Okay, I know how to end this. Okay, um, my brain and mouth caught up to each other. Uh, but when I read all the submissions, um, honestly, my my takeaway was first off, a lot of guys are writing the same thing. I'm not interested in that. Wally Young blew me away because uh, his story was just like, uh, you know, the video game Doom on crack with in the Old West. It's just wild as fuck. And besides him, a lot of the guys just kind of wrote the same thing. And some of them weren't even in the Old West or the West at all. Um, but a lot of the women, they were unique. They came from different voices, which if I'm doing anything, I don't want to, you know, repeat what a bunch of other people have done. Um, all this to say, this is Hot Iron Cold Blood is the first one that I'm going to be doing and uh, trying to trying to do another one. Um, and I don't want to reveal any more because we're in the works of trying to get something done, but bringing Drew a part of it or should be so yeah I don't want to reveal too much because it's still in the works but I kind of want to tease people that read this and say what the fuck is he talking about so mm -hmm. shit's in the works um if you like this you probably like the next one um and women writing western horrors or whatever here's the other thing I I don't like saying it's going to be in these parameters write what you think it means if you ask women to do that, I'll say it. Most of them are going to be a lot better than, you know, most of the men. I don't know how else to word that. Is that, I'm probably going to get shit from some guys, right? I mean, we're all going to get shit from everybody anyhow. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so, I have limited experience in it, but I'm just saying, like, I wanted to pick so many more of them, but it's not my money. I'm not the publisher. I can't be like, yeah, we'll ha have six more, but I, I don't know. Read it and you'll see. 
Okay. All right. Rhonda's forward was amazing. Like she's, she's got an academic background, but she's just like the cool type of academic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And we are all very appropriately teased now. Okay. Um, so, all right. So let's go ahead and end on that note with, with a good teaser for what's coming next. Everybody, thank you so much for jumping on here tonight. This was a lot of fun. Um, the anthology is great, and I hope everybody dives into it as soon as it comes out. Uh, Pat, we took a stab at this earlier, uh, September 26th. Mm -hmm. Hey, we got it. But uh, listeners, thanks for tuning in. Uh, this closes us out for the week. But please, before you go, don't forget to like, subscribe, review, or carve the name of your streaming service of choice into your last bullet and follow them into the desert. Y'all got a score to settle. And uh, stay spooky. has tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go.